Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful, and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of the Aesthetic City. Today, we have a very special guest who has been incredibly important for the world of urbanism. He has inspired many others to enter this field of traditional architecture and urbanism and shown that tradition is still incredibly valid in our age. His theories, which he has been formulating since the 70s, challenged modernist ideas directly. At first, he chose not to build, as building would mean that the architect's ideas would be corrupted. But yet, he did eventually build, and not just something. Poundbury, for example, a new town next to Dorchester and a project by King Charles, is by his hand. And so is Cayala, the new settlement in Guatemala. His book, The Architecture of Community, is a must-have, and can be found on many bookshelves. It contains his typical characters and drawings that illustrate his ideas. Before letting you wait any longer, I just want to say that my voice during the recording was a bit hoarse due to a cold. Please forgive me for that. When I started this podcast project around two years ago, it was my dream to have this guest on eventually. And now we are here. So without further ado, please welcome Leon Creer. Thank you very, very much, Leon Creer, for being here and being on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. You do great work. Thank you so much. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this episode a long time. So uh, I'm very excited to, uh, well, dive right into the questions. So maybe first of all, I want to go a little bit into, well, your history, because you, back in the day, did not finish an architectural degree, but you have formed unique visions on urban design. You worked at the firm and, um, yeah, what has been the strongest influence on your ideas uh, back when you were starting out, I think? I think the, the definitive influence on my work was where I grew up. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in Luxembourg City and uh, my grandparents, very nice grandparents, lived in Ashtonach. Ashtonach was destroyed under the Rundstedt Offensive mm -hmm. and it was rebuilt in the years when we went there on holiday. And so building for the family was, you know, we always, my parents took, took us to see beautiful yeah. beautiful cities in you know, beautiful places in Italy. And, and there was an agreement of what was attractive. Yeah. And what was being done, for instance, in national the reconstruction of the of the abbey and the, particularly the the basilica and the main square in Nashtonach, which is very famous in, in Holland because it's a, a lot of Dutch Dutch tourism there, uh, was done entirely traditionally. Yeah. And when I tried to interview the architects who had done this to publish it in the 70s, they were ashamed of their own work. Ah, don't go to, oh. don't talk about this because we do I do now modern work. Go to see the German embassy I built all in concrete in Luxembourg and so on. <laughs> Horrible work. So it is a, a generation which was torn by the fact of having built traditionally. And because traditional building was then associated with the Nazis, which is an extreme oversimplification because Nazis, you know, German National Socialism, mm -hmm. was also a modernist movement, a futurist movement. It was not about reviving traditional architecture. I mean, they used traditional architecture, but most buildings done in the, in the Third Reich were, were modernist. They were factories and uh, you know, barracks and so on. Yeah. Why, why so was that? Yeah. It was that that experience of rebuilding, which when I then went to study, uh, 
where we didn't learn anything in Stuttgart at the Technische Technical High School, Polytechnic of Stuttgart. Yeah. And after, because I was already tending to do more more traditional design, um, I was absolutely my my projects were cancelled by the professors. So I, I saw no chance, and only you know to to get uh, proper credits because they would mark me plus minus zero, which is not a credit. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so I left because it was uh, a waste, and my brother had already studied five years in in Munich, and he said, "Yes, just leave because there's nothing more to learn." Yeah. And then, and then I worked. <clears throat> I went to work for a famous architect in England, James Sterling, mm-hmm. and I then dropped out very quickly. I worked for him three, three and to four years on and off. That even this master of modernism. He knew nothing about real traditional architecture, nor about urbanism. Yeah. So, and in the meanwhile, I saw that I I get I always got a newspaper from Luxembourg and called Blitzboye Land, which is Luxembourg land. Always on the front page, there was once a week a picture of a nice building, a nice wall, a nice tree, a nice lamppost, a nice kiosk. Mm-hmm really nice everybody agrees it was nice unfortunately this beautiful thing had to to uh, be lost to progress because we can't go back and so on and <clears throat> the, when one day I, I lived then in Berlin I got this Luxembourg paper saying park or parking photograph of the park <laughs> and that the town administration wanted to cut down the park in Luxembourg and replace it by parking so I got really alarmed, and then I started really working in these themes and yeah. reading and you know, traveling. And so I self I self educated because there was nobody yeah. I, for a master, and the one who was then very famous Aldo Rossi. I found out he has absolutely no clue about urbanism. Yeah, Corbusier was was my old ideal master. Was abs- was totally against against uh, urbanism yeah. and so i felt it like i have to do this because even my best friends they said but you can't criticize zoning because that is now law i said but what if the law is faulty yeah built us into a disaster oh but that is you know that's now that's you you are nostalgic no you can't go back but so, then yeah well, I, I started then, I was invited to teach before even I, I wanted to, in London to do a diploma at, uh, at the Architectural Association, which was mm-hmm. a very open school. But I was invited to teach before I could do a diploma. <laughs> and it was through teaching that I then formulated my first notions of a real coherent theory mm-hmm. for building for urbanism. And which hasn't changed because that was i had lived this as a child and another lesson you probably too i think all the people who are interested in this had somewhere an important event in their life in their childhood or in their holidays where they discovered bloody hell there's something (laughs) there's something which is really resolved as far as and and urbanism goes yeah and yeah. then study, study that and make it into a body of work and uh, publish it. I published them a lot. And um, that then became, curiously in America, was very much promoted by 
Peter Eisenman, who was my real, the most radical opponent. He was against it, but he wanted me to, to invited me to 10 lectures around the United States. And it is then, on these yeah. 10 lectures, that I met people who are still now, Andras Duvani and people like that, um, we are still allies now because we had been on the same search. Andras Duvani had the same experience. He grew up partially in, in Cuba and partially in, in Barcelona. Yeah. United States discovering that there was another world out there. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things. So you mentioned you, you self-educated and you formed your own idea. So what, what works did you read that really shaped you and uh, this self-education, these ideas that they form in a uh, vacuum or together with other people, like did you grow a network or how did that happen? There was, there was, my brother was, of course, he was, educate before me he's eight years older and mm -hmm. uh, he introduced me to Corbusier and to all these modernist ideas huh? yeah and um, but he was also searching but you know, very much in the modernist line he worked even for for Fraioto who was then the most you know this high-tech man yeah. and but for me when I worked for Sterling he, he asked me to do competition for Derby yeah Derby City Center, and at the same time, I was working privately on a project for the town where my grandparents lived in Ashton. And so I knew I don't have the, the material to work with this body. You know, it's like a surgeon, a heart surgeon being asked to operate on the liver. I don't know. Yeah. You, know, you have to quickly <laughs> learn. And it's really by doing that I learned, because it's not in a void. We live in a thousand years of culture where you have the traces yeah. of good architecture and good space forming everywhere. But the, while I was working on these two projects, uh, the, the book which really changed my life and my perception was the reading of Camilo Zitte, mm -hmm. Town Planning According to Artistic yeah. Principles. It's a work of genius who is still today, when you read it, it's, it's, a, it's philosophic, but also extremely practical talking about public space not as some leftover between buildings but as a, a formative void no it's a positive void it's a, a void which is a space which creates actually a civic society and without that public space public realm whether it's squares or streets and and the mixture of these things that uh community forms because yeah. it's not enough to have markets out on the in the field and then dissolve but you need some structure which represents more than just commerce or religion or uh, private or, or public interest is something which is really a place which is a space for the community and for the society where society is formed and without that we, we don't you know Humans need an artificial space to form society because it's not a natural thing. Yeah. Hannah Arendt was also important. No, Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, she spoke about that in order for a public realm to exist, it needs to, um, to outlive the mortal span of private life, something like that. And it needs to be have a dimension of the eternal, even if it's eternal in relationship to, to humankind, not to eternity as such, but yeah. something which, which transcends the mortal 
mortal man. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, not not yeah. avoid because this was always done in contrary discussion also with, with Sterling. I wanted Sterling to get more into this and he was, he said, I can't do this. I can't go that far. I would never dare do that. What I did for, when I showed him my drawings for Ashtonach. He said, I, I would never dare do that. I said, but you did it when you were young. You did one project where you had traditional buildings. Ah, well, but that was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you were still, at that time, surrounded by, well, the Royal College of Arts, the Arch Architectural Association, uh, probably diehard modernists. So how did that relate, that change to... Um... Well, in the 70s, the, uh, Sterling was considered like the best, generally. Yeah. There were very few... Khan was was very well known, but uh, what I heard of Khan, I, I wanted to work for him at one time, but he's like a mystic uh, you know, fantasist, yeah. mythology building around himself and so on, which I didn't mm -hmm. like at all. Mm -hmm. There was always debates. I had an office next to, I was invited by Elia Zangelis, who was the master of uh, Ram Kolas. Yeah. But Elias Zangelis was authentically mad. I mean, charming <laughs> buildings, which were completely mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we were friends. Or Werner um, uh, Trumi, he was not yet, he had not yet formulated his position in architecture. He was more like structuralist uh, French theory and so on. Uh, there, there was also a communist, uh, Brian Anson, who he wrote on my door. Uh, grand bourgeois, no, because I dressed in three piece suits. My father was a tailor, so I would dress yeah. because everybody dressed disgustingly with horrible, not yet tattoos, but <laughs> <laughs> I dressed like a banker, <laughs> <laughs> which was a shock. It was a scandal. Why does he wear a tie? Well, because you don't <laughs> like it. No. <laughs> it speaks to you. Yeah. So I wrote on their door, petit bourgeois. Things like that, but it was always in good faith. It was very nice atmosphere. And um, well, my first exhibition in in England was organized by by Peter Cook, who was the one of the founding members of Archigram, who were high tech, who were all friends. You know? yeah. And that is what is what is now uh, what is lost. That you know, oppositions have now gone into fanatic positions which denounce each other which i find absolutely terribly sad because it's it's against the luxury of democracy is that you can be best friends with the person you don't agree with yeah 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 and the idea that we have all to to agree about health and and safety and is an absolute is a takeover of a very small clique of totalitarians who pretend that they hold truth, you know, that they, they know what truth is. And that is people who pretend that, you know, who want to tell you what this information is, they are totalitarians. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it, it must have been an interesting time. Because because, information there. Yeah, so much must have been um, changing. Also in the 70s is when uh, entire neighborhoods that were perfectly fine were torn down and replaced by horrific new projects and you were also by the way um part of the the skidmore owings and merrill uh institute in chicago so how did you end up in these little cliques if you were um 
Yeah, because you only worked as an architect. So you probably already made a name for yourself in those times. Or how did that work out? Well, what I learned at Sterling is was publishing. Okay. I I when I didn't do projects, I, I worked on, on publishing work. I I edited his first major book. Mm -hmm. And so he was what what was very important that for publishing a building, he was very careful to design the documents, the, the drawings, which would really strike. Yeah. Because from experience, my brother was a genius of an artist, incredibly wealthy in productions. He would do projects, enormous projects with thousands of drawings and send them boxes of material to magazines, which yeah. were never published. Mm -hmm. The only drawings he ever published were drawings I had redone of a church of his in order to publish it in Architecture d'Aujourd'hui, reduced three drawings. We sent and it was published. Wow, yeah. Yeah, because... <laughs> with Sterling, I, I, I understood. You have to be very careful what you choose. So I redrew all my... While at Sterling, I redrew all my projects. Three yeah. drawings, a text which was just 10 lines. I sent it to... Um, I think about 12 magazines and 12 magazines published eight to 20 pages. Wow. Yeah. Within, within three months, I had suddenly a name in the architectural scene, 1972, 71. Yeah. And then I got invited. You know. Yeah. So what, was yeah. that already with your signature style of hand-drawn pictures or was it different type of drawings? No, it was projects. The, okay. Yeah. Those, those cartoons, I did them. I wanted to do a book. I edited mm -hmm. a series with Maurice Curot called uh, Re Reconstruction, Reconstruction yeah. de la Ville Européenne. And we would publish a lot of ancient texts like Camillosita or uh, yeah. Karl Gruber. So, texts which were very important for us. Karl Gruber was a very important person for me. Also, archaeologists like Christian and so on. And I wanted particularly to republish a book by uh, Heinrich Tessenhoff, who was a German architect, who was <clears throat> very famous as reintroducing, after the Victorian excesses, of reducing vernacular wisdom, vernacular craft, vernacular modes, kind of Biedermeier uh, a spirit of simple truthful and beautiful objects, whether it's yeah. architect or plan. And his book on the small town and craftsmanship is a formidable text, philosophically, but also practically. And <clears throat> I, re I introduced that, but then I found also things I didn't agree with. And I worked on it for over a year. And I found because I don't want to rewrite, I have to do my own, I don't want to republish yes. to do my own book and I found <clears throat> then you know, writing and writing and writing and uh, presenting these ideas was I was you know, met by question marks what does it mean so within once after a conference in, in uh, Barcelona I was so alarmed by people don't get it that I did in 14 days, I did like a summary of like 100 of these raw, almost yeah. pornographic drawings, which was yeah. like outburst, 
which was a summary of all the ideas I ever had. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I noticed that, which were very much influenced by um, Sampé, you know, the French, he, he was an, um, a famous caricaturist, Sampé, uh, yeah. who published always in Paris much or uh, uh, forget now the names or yeah. even Alan. you know you had and there was one drawing yeah. which was from Fundamental where he drew a road a big road with lots of cars on the right you have a skyscraper glass skyscraper mm -hmm. on, on the left on the glass skyscraper and down at the entrance, there's a restaurant with half-timbered entrance called Alt Bayern, Old Bavaria. Mm -hmm. The other side of the street, there's a traditional town, a corner block, and the cafe on the corner is called Cafe Modern. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that single drawing spurned, I mean, it really inspired me to, to do my own caricatures. Yeah, because often characters is something also they really flourish in dictatorships because it's only humor is the only way you can still communicate when everything is blocked when the normal discourse is blocked. Yeah, I do agree. Humor is very necessary, but also I think with especially with with modernism, but also with a profession that that takes itself so serious and where there are dogmas which need to be broken. I think these type of drawings can really help to break open the discussion and i have your book here with me and i i think it's it's a must-have book because of the drawings because i mean it's not only the the humor that explains things very profoundly but also a cartoonist of course also just a simple line drawing it simplifies concepts to the core um, an interesting point about that yeah. when i uh, some years ago i wanted to publish all these cartoons in one book and I wrote to all my publishers and nobody wanted to touch it. Hmm. It was published by MIT. You know why? No. Because Peter Eisenman's wife, Davidson, hmm. she published those drawings because Peter yeah. Eisenman also wanted them to be published, even though we don't agree about anything. <laughs> 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 That's, or even called me an anti-Semite when I published, uh, which he knew was was just insult. I mean, it's uh, ridiculous. Not to, um, and but it's it's important to maintain this the contrary debate because most modernism or most fanatics they are also monumentally hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we I know always that... remember. Rem Kohlhaas lives in a Victorian townhouse and the list goes on and on. Like most modernist firms work in traditional buildings, but what they design is completely different. So yeah, it's just one aspect. Yeah, I published with Maurice Guillot five articles called Private Virtue and Public Vice, hmm. where, where the big architects live and what they plan. In Paris, in Rome, in Berlin, in Luxembourg, in London. And it was everywhere the same story. No. And that is why I, they think I'm critical of. No, I compliment them where they live, where they go on holiday, where they retire, where they take their children to visit. 
that shows their nice their human side <laughs> but and that is why i think studying what happened in architecture 60 years ago is so important because it's now happening with politics now you can't have disagreements anymore about climate change or climate change climate change uh, who knows anything about about those matters science certainly doesn't and mm -hmm. uh, that is the problem that our conception of science is has been very brave in exploring the microcosm and the ma macrocosm but to study the real the earth science doesn't really exist <laughs> otherwise you couldn't you couldn't have such idiotic policies becoming dominating the politics huh? yeah uh, as they are now yeah um I want to park this subject for for the end of the video where I want or of the podcast where I want to uh, discuss all these topics um, more in integrally, like society and um, yeah, uh, freedom, uh, tyranny, <laughs> uh, because I think it's uh, it is an interesting topic to to discuss. Uh, but but first, I want to maybe go back to uh, just a question about some of your work. So you said I'm an architect and I choose not to build early on in your career so could you explain that phrase and how you why you decided to not build because uh, when i was working at sterling's i noticed how much effort it was to do buildings which were very unsatisfactory <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. I mean, the effort uh, to do buildings which in the end are not worth the efforts and yeah i got the, to the conclusion, particularly Maurice Culot and my friend yeah. Massimo Scolari, they said, you you cannot build because you know, society is now on a rail which is not going to that destination. You are on a different rail track. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I then, I exaggerated this and I said that I do architecture because I'm not an architect. And no, because I'm doing architecture because I do not build. And uh, because architects who build are compromised and the situation is so corrupt that you become corrupted. And I think not only I was right then, but I'm still right now because I noticed that whenever I'm involved in building, uh, many of the ideas, even of the principles get corrupted. And even now in Kayala, we have these problems with skyscrapers, you know. The only, yeah. the only way to save the density of walkable heights for the next quarter was <clears throat> to allow three skyscrapers to fulfill the program which is publicly allowed by the Plan de Ordenación yeah. Territory, which is, in my mind, a criminal instrument. It promotes criminal speculation on land. Yeah. And... Um, but but then once you do that, and I couldn't sleep for, for a while because I did this because I all my life I have been militating yeah. skyscrapers because they are toxic for for towns. Huh? Yeah. And I noticed now that they even ruined uh, the prospect of the future of, of of that project because instead of building them at the end to fulfill their, they are going to start with the skyscrapers. Huh? Yeah. 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 So how could you uh, give a short rundown of how skyscrapers are toxic for towns? Because I think it's nowadays also in the Netherlands, we are building towers everywhere. And well, not only is the, the skyline of Amsterdam, for example, is ruined by blocky, well, blocks 
and uh, also entire places are made well are killed the on the street level you just get huge blank facades with only one entry with a hundred letter boxes um <clears throat> and yet they see it as a as something necessary and even as something as, as progress in a way uh, but yeah how would you summarize your views on skyscrapers well the skyscrapers <coughs> utilitarian skyscrapers an excessive use of urban land, of, of urban building plots. And by multiplying the floors, now you increase necessarily, if there's good market, you increase income. Yeah. But I found out that whatever you build above, above the walkable heights, money becomes so important that architecture goes out of the, the window. Also skyscrapers, <clears throat> there are huge concentration of, of building. Of building programs they need large corporations large finance they need zoning which actually does no longer is anti-urban in a sense that yeah. instead of, instead of uh, growing in in walkable distances and heights uh, you start building buildings which are only possible with uh, cheap fossil fuel no with cheap yeah. energy yeah. And also, as we now know, I mean, now it becomes general part of the general discourse that we are over the oil peak and that sooner or later we have to cut down on the uh, use of fossil fuels. Uh, and, <clears throat> and when we have a crisis, like now with Russia and so on, lag of gas and, and, and uh, the oil crisis with the Middle East, that suddenly these buildings, the prospect of their short-sightedness becomes suddenly scandalously evident to everyone. What yeah. if you don't have cheap energy? What if you can't air condition the glass buildings in Doha? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if the Noam, Noam, no, or what is uh, the, Neom, Neom, yeah. Neom, if Neom, which relies entirely on horizontal streams of very fast traffic, what if no they run out of oil yeah or what if their oil gets stolen by more powerful uh, countries yeah and uh, what if they can't clean their glass 500 meter and 150 kilometers <laughs> long mirror glass in a storm after a storm i mean it's such insane ideas whereas the uh, traditional towns always rely on walk on comfortable walk on what a human can walk comfortably every day and and that is you know, the traditional urban quarters which is about 10 minutes across maximum walking and three four floor heights which you can walk comfortably we live briefly in madrid on the eighth floor yeah. and we walk once a day for exercise but it's it's you know, not using the lift too much yeah, it, yeah, and so three floors is the a walkable height, and then when you have penthouses, it's it's very. I don't know whether you saw Antigua in the uh, in Guatemala, whether you I, went I, to Antigua. I didn't have the time uh, to to go there, but yeah, but yeah. It's, very, it's very interesting. It's two story high town, but every every two story high building has a penthouse. 
for the the, the rich people. Wow. And when you yeah. are on the two-story penthouse, it's the same feeling than being on the 60-story penthouse. You are above the world. The town is your landscape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can have that luxury. You don't need skyscrapers to have penthouses up in the air. Now, on the other hand, the, the skyscraper is purely from a um, circulation point of view, is a cul-de-sac, is a vertical yep. cul-de-sac, is a social divider, because once you have, have you ever talked to anyone in, in a lift? No. When you are, it's, it's embarrassing. You are too close for comfort. Uh, um, it's not the socialized <laughs> experience. Yeah where the street is, you know. Um, and once you plug these enormous cul-de-sacs, horizontal or vertical, suburbs are horizontal cul-de-sacs. Once mm -hmm. you plug onto the national grid of traffic or of uh, energy streams and communication streams, they necessarily become the points of crisis because they, they have such a load on the network that you need to very carefully um, police that and 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 it's something also imagine a very beautiful town becomes a magnet for also for money and then yeah. of course because it's a magnet for making money there's the the tendency to build higher to make more money but then once you build above that certain limit, money is the only thing which counts, and that means that you are going to destroy the, the charm for which you have been attracted to. Yeah. And but then also it has no future because if you imagine if you build one skyscraper, the principle of three-story walkable heights is destroyed, and therefore every single lot, neighboring lot, has the right. The constitutional right to do the same thing but then imagine i say that even if we had no limit of fossil fuel we should still build according to traditional principle because imagine we have no problem with fossil fuel so every single lot builds its skyscraper then you have hong kong yeah you yeah. you want every town to be like the center of hong kong it's yeah. like the, the and then what now, once these buildings uh, need a renovation, and usually they are built for money, so they are very cheaply built, only the steel and the concrete hold it up, and the rest is garbage. The, the installation, the services need to be renovated every 30 years. And then you have to build higher in order to pay for the renovation. And so it's, it's, an, <laughs> unthinking, it's an unthinking uh, concept. Yeah, yeah. And, and meanwhile, there is an, there is an alternative instead of capitalizing off the beauty of these towns and being a parasite to them with skyscrapers, you can also just build more smaller, beautiful settlements. And yeah. we know it works because Kayala is the example. We were in Bruges recently and uh, we talked to the uh, mayor, to the assistant mayor, and she's, she tries to oppose the skyscrapers, which is being built outside, just another skyscraper. It's what arguments so I send her also the arguments. But that's the point. You know, the charm of Bruges is to have two or three three-story high buildings, but with a lot of high buildings, you know, the, the Beffroi and the the different churches, the enormous yeah. skyscraper of the, 
Peter and Paul Church, I think it's 140 meters high, out of brick. Yeah. <laughs> That's the construction. And they are the true skyscrapers because <clears throat> vertical uh, buildings in a horizontal fabric are very mm. important to mark the central locations, central squares, important mm. communal buildings like churches or town halls or even schools and universities to mark their location, not only in plan, but also in silhouette. So actually you read the importance, of the, it's like a language, you read the, the, yeah. the silhouette of Bruges from afar, where the important stuff is and, and where the, the less important, where the economy, the economic fabric and where the symbolic fabric are. Yeah. And this is being destroyed by skyscrapers. They have already built an ugly one outside Bruges. Instead of building a new Bruges, no. Yeah. But yeah. but the problem is that with uh, functional zoning, which was brought in by large corporations pushing for very uh, uh, land use which is uh, uh, monofunctional, because the market, the modern industrial market, has educated finance and industry and um, and retail to work in very large envelopes in ever larger envelopes and they don't want to be bothered by architecture because it's you know it's considered to be an, a useless decoration and therefore these vast when you have large-scale uh, geographic zoning you cannot build towns because if your job as an architect is to build to design seven thousand houses in one location what can yeah. you do yeah <laughs> seven thousand houses so you get bored. It's pre-planned boredom. And also yeah. it's pre-planned social division because usually these zones become not only architecturally monotonous, but also socially monotonous, yeah. like the communities in the United States or even um, uh, in South America, that they are they become really class, class oriented. Yeah. Yeah. And it's divided, it's against the formation of civic civil society mm -hmm. and we have we are we are going to pay pay the price for that very soon yeah. yeah i fully believe that too um one interesting thing i have to think of was uh well the the one of the ideas one of the reasons i think that we that people uh don't choose to build a new kaila or a new bruges for example um and I see this everywhere, is a lack of confidence by architects and planners and society in general to create beauty. To They don't believe that they are able to, um, even though there are examples of where it happens and that it is possible. So this lack of confidence, um, uh, they, they have started believing that the world is just as it is and, well, uh, let's just do something to to get some house somewhere it's kind of a uh yeah they're already defeated uh, what's your view on this well it is that actually uh, architects are no longer able to do it most most architects when you yeah when you, when you go five years to architecture school except notre dame <laughs> south <laughs> And maybe one or two professors in Miami, and there there's isolated cases mm -hmm. in every country now. Even in Germany, in Potsdam, you have uh, one or two professors. Um, 
architects don't know to, how to do traditional architecture. Yeah, they yeah. call themselves architect, but modernism is not architecture. It's it's to do with volume building, wrapping in in rather uh, you know, cheap materials, hmm. and uh, but it has nothing to do with the art of architecture, which is more than just naked building. And zoning, zoning is the main instrument which destroys that that possibility of building towns. For instance, uh, I mean the the town I built for the Prince of Wales in, in England, which is now finishing the last quarter, Poundbury. That was in area which was purely seen for employment. And then, in order to build a real town, was endless arguments. Uh, that we said, but we want to integrate the workplaces with the with the, the different uh, town quarters and so on. And this was only because there were three, four people who agreed with this. You know, one mm -hmm. in the council, one in the the chief architect of the West Dorset District Council, the politician, uh, liberal politician, and of course the prince and myself. Without us, this would not have happened. Yeah, because bureaucracy which is the kind of parasite which is killing democracy and government the notion of of civic government of police is being destroyed by the ever-growing bureaucracy bureaucracy is there to administer zoning and zoning is this extreme simplification of the future mm -hmm. which is then uh, um, uh, administered by endless amounts of ridiculous prescriptions of the width of streets of parking of how many trees you are allowed how much light you have to project at night uh, of density and so on <clears throat> yeah and bureaucracy is a parasite which is not only incompetent in designing towns but it's also not allowed to think because if you work as an important figure in a bureaucracy and you think you become an enemy, the most important person in Luxembourg, in the Point mm -hmm. Chaussée, my conferences, and I said, why do you come to my conferences? I said, I totally agree with you. He said, how come? Point Chaussée, they are the worst. They destroyed the town. He was then so, he, he was very active for three years having trees replanted on the country roads and even trying to to get back to, we did projects with Lucien Steil for different villages but he became so desperate that after four years in his post he suicided oh my goodness yeah, terrible and this was 1982 because once you are once you begin to think within a bureaucracy, you cannot you cannot stay there. You just have to struggle to get up in the hierarchy. And, and this is not only the case in architecture, it's the same in planning, it's the same in, in the military. Listen to Douglas MacGregor talking about the American army now and why we are losing against the Russians. Because his bureaucratization is toxic. When I always cite this example, when Luxembourg built its best extension, the Boulevard Royal, the park, and the Avenue de la Liberté, and the whole mm -hmm. quarter, which is fantastic, fantastic architecture, an incredible stone bridge. 
it's still now the best. The modernists have destroyed the Boulevard Royal, but the Avenue de la Liberté is still there. But now they destroy it with a terrible tramway. When those, when that quarter was built and the bridges, Luxembourg had no uh, building administration. They had one architect called Luya. And Mr. Luya was friends with the prime minister and with the uh, with, uh, uh, burgermeister. Yeah. And he decided to invite the best German planner, Josef Stüppen, and the best architects in Cologne and in Paris and wherever they invited. And they built spectacular buildings in 10 years, a quarter, yeah. an urban quarter like I wouldn't be able to do that because we lost that kind of capacity. There was no bureaucracy. There was one architect who commissioned yeah. this, who supervised for the government and for the, the town hall. And he had no office in the town hall. He worked from home and he had no <laughs> assistant, which proves that, you know, in, for instance, in Poundbury, the, the last quarter of Poundbury, we work with uh, Ben Pantreath, fantastic architect, and George Somersmith. Mm -hmm. They do most of the buildings. I do the massing and the, the street layout and you know, the accents, whatever, it's public spaces and the planting. But then they hand in drawings to me. I look at them. These drawings are perfect. I used to have to correct always the chimneys and the entrances and the columns. And <laughs> now they're perfect. There's nothing to say for me. And I'm a master yeah. architect. 50 years of, of practice. Yeah. These drawings get now in a formidable portfolio, get handed to the local administration who employ, I don't know how many people looking at these drawings for two years before we get the, the permit. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to say but trivia. And that is what why science, why economy, why our our intellectuals have to face the reality, how much democracy can, how much bureaucracy can a democracy afford? In what field? In health, in planning, in safety, in commerce. Yeah. And we yeah. don't have that data. Yeah. There's a wonderful book about, um, about uh, well, uh, small, how small scale uh, is, works better in almost every case. As things grow, they become more inefficient and just uh, worse overall. I think the book is called Small is Beautiful, but it might be different. Ah, yes, Schumacher. Yeah. Schumacher. Yeah. yeah. And he was right. He actually yeah. he, he visited the AA when I taught there, but I was not yet quite aware of this. But it was important and <clears> it was what he meant is human scale. Yeah. That there is also human scale intelligence. <laughs> things get too complex nobody can control it yeah and then you lose no yeah. the, the, um, but we know that at least we know that traditional town traditional agriculture traditional operations traditional lotting parceling of lots in towns allowing small families families or small developers to to build a town rather than mega mega conglomerates, corporations uh, with colossal investments. And, and uh, yep. uh, 
then we can rebuild a human scale society. But because for the moment we are on, on a way out of humanity. And yeah. it's going to be extreme. Yeah. Uh, the trends are going the other way. It's not going towards human skill. Um, but because human yeah. scale also in violence, human scale, one of the, the great problems of human societies is to control violence, which is controlled by by laws, but also by mythology. And uh, because rivalries between individuals and groups needs a certain scale not to be and a certain discipline not to become self-destructive like vendetta rene girard is the most important philosopher who wrote violence and the sacred formidable mm. book but his last book is about um Ashevi clausewitz he says we are now in such a scale a, a superhuman scale of violence that it is now uncontrollable and you know we are now speculating mm. whether Putin is going to throw a bomb, but we are the ones who are provoking. Ra says that we are now so beyond human scale uh, violence that it's going to to be apocalyptic. And from what mm. uh, we so far are safe, but we feel yeah. that. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the book Entropy by Jeremy um, Jeremy, what's his name? I forget his name. Mm. Entropy, which was published in two thousand. Okay. Is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the large scale operations, they are extremely entropic. Huh? Yeah. Where small scale uh, chaos can can manage itself by yeah. by negotiation. Whereas when you have very large scale confrontations, gigantic yeah. confrontations like Russia ba against yeah. or, or banks collapsing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's they say too big to fail. Yeah. But actually, too big to survive. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, maybe the idea of of progress. Um, why is the idea of progress so attractive, and why are so many politicians, developers, etc., blind to the obvious qualities of places that support community, and yeah, blind to the promises that solutions that have already worked hold. <clears throat> Yeah, well, the, the belief in progress is, is, of course, linked to the idea of um, uh, that humankind is not a creation, but is something which is under evolution now. <laughs> and that, yeah. Yeah. with the idea that as we evolve, humankind will also become more intelligent. And I think that is a, form, a formidable, a terrible systemic mistake because mm -hmm. uh, we are now so, not only number-wise, but also, in fact, now in my lifetime, humankind has doubled. It's I'm now part of yeah. uh, humanity. I'm causing the <laughs> doubling of, yeah. of humankind from four to eight billion. And... If we were more intelligent, now it would be very clear that with so much intelligence, intelligence mass around, I mean, the future would be bright. Yeah. And uh, and yet we see that virtually all major, I mean, the development of architecture is, is a case in point. Because mm -hmm. from having been 
a craft, an art which had resolved all problems of building in different climates, in different seismic conditions, in different soils and uh, different altitudes, creating incredibly rich language of diverse language of environment, of artificial human environment, whether it's in the Himalayas or <laughs> South America or in Central Europe or in the United States. And that has all been lost in the last 60 years, 70 years, to a completely inferior system, which is not even a language, which is kind of stutter, which is yeah. unable to distinguish between a house and a castle, yeah. um, which is just, no, it's just building mass and wrapping of building mass in, in rather fragile materials. So how, if we have become more intelligent, how can we bear to have our hospitals being the worst buildings in Italy? Yeah. Hospitals in Italy, I mean, they're disgusting. <laughs> you, would, you wouldn't want animals to be housed there. Yeah. And, and ugly buildings make you sick when you have to stand there. And I wonder, no, I always ask doctors, how can you stand it? working in such a horrible space, whereas hospitals built in the 19th century, around turn of century, in every country, used to be charming, charming ensembles, beautifully resolved, offered, often with separate yeah. pavilions, separate yeah. with... So. Now they're hotels, yeah. Yeah, and now, now they're like, oof, in, in Ann Arbor, the biggest hospital, teaching hospital in, in the United States, it's like a mile long. You know? dominating hill and every piece is ugly inside mm -hmm. and outside and that affects that affects the mind and people who work in it and so that people who work in this environment become also like impoverished uh, they become like part of of the the corporate machine which is and which is then able to impose policies which are criminal you know, coming out of who and so small scale is not really small scale but which needs to be defined but human scale mm -hmm. human scale is not a sentimental affair but is what we can manage you know yeah. um, by motricity or by intelligence and there are problems which we can no longer resolve yeah i mean the idea of pollution which uh, you know, which we have not resolved the problem of pollute a pollution of uh, from atomic power stations yeah yet we are building this and even the greens now uh, you know there are a lot of greens who now finally turn that there's no no future in fossil fuel <laughs> now they want <laughs> to be but the basic problem of how to make this sustainable over a very long period of time is not solved and also how if we live in societies which are violent and the war in ukraine is just a latest demonstration that war is still a possibility in every country and not just far away in, in the east and i always wonder how would it look if if we had again a war in central europe where we have all these atomic power stations yeah if you have madmen just with a, an, a good device and a good rocket that can can cause a major yeah so many deaths yeah destroy destroy the entire landscape and uh, Therefore, they are problems which are beyond the human, human solution. And therefore, it needs to be, I was involved with uh, 
clients, German clients to, to build a project mm -hmm. called Atlantis. And I thought they were utopian. They were too utopian. Where you would have like an international academy to bring together residents of all the different branches of human endeavor of culture and politics and, and science and economy so that you would have a small group of, of people who are really the leaders, intellectual leaders, but working at a practical solution for the future as an alternative to the corporate corporate socialist monster because socialism and corp no, corporate capitalism is, is ending the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Marx said it actually <laughs> but what would be the alternative what is we have a counter project in in uh, in town planning and architecture but i can't see anywhere such a counter project which could actually uh, be an alternative to china or to corporate america or to fascist europe no which is now dominating europe corporate the the coll collusion of corporation yeah. and state is what what uh, Ayn Rand defined as the form of fascism, not just in Italy but mm -hmm. everywhere, and yeah. that we we didn't have really uh, Ayn Rand who was the kind of um, the triumphalist uh, capitalist, but she said we don't have capitalism because yeah. if we had real capitalism, somebody who can who who cooks an excellent hamburger can actually go into competition with and destroy mcdonald's yeah <laughs> but if you try in the mcdonald imperium to establish a hamburger place which makes real good hamburgers which is not that difficult they are going to destroy you politically or, or even in southern france they will eliminate you physically <laughs> <laughs> it's and that is why we need the counter project, a political and economic counter project. And that is, I thought, you know, when I was director of the of this institute in you mentioned in Skidmoings and Merrill Institute, mm -hmm. I had drafted an, a paper which they paid for, and I was chosen for that paper amongst 35 contestants to actually create a documents you know, like primers. Not only about planning, but also how planning relates to 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 industry, and we would have different experts in economy and politics, constitutional thinkers, to have more than just an architectural and urban project, and that unfortunately so far is missing. I left because it was impossible to. Mm -hmm. uh, it was dominated by the dictator Gordon Bunchaft, who was the 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 dictator then of. Uh, of uh, Skidmoings and Merrill was a large corporation of thousand employees and they treated me like I was director but they treated me like <laughs> they <laughs> wanted to put me in office in and I said in London I have a fantastic office why should I come to Chicago sitting in the basement of, of your Chandler house you know? <laughs> and because corporations by definitions are not democratic if you look inside bank corporations or industrial corporations it's absolute dictatorship Incredibly yeah. brutal. If you don't behave, you're out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that, together with state power, is what is going to be the new form of fascism, which is now being established, and deconstructing traditional societies by destroying language, destroying sex, destroying uh, cities, destroying agriculture, uh, having us eat. What what are they planning? Controlling climate. 
I mean, yeah. with spraying kind of toxic materials in the sky. Yeah. So it's... we need we need separation of the government of of state and economy. Uh, but yeah, total separation. Yeah. 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 And no like... public-private partnership. Because yeah. that is the big thing, public-private. But the counter-project, how that looks, and I tried to meet the people. I wish there were people coming forth. What would be what would, would be the future of democracy? Yeah. Without the bureaucracy. No. How much does a parliament have to sit to maintain democracy over life? Does it have to sit every year? Why does it sit all no, six or eight months making laws which need to be administered by armies of bureaucrats? I mean, Biden employed 75,000 more bureaucrats to bring in American tax. <laughs> they just bring in tax to pay for themselves. That's what they are there for. And pay for armaments which are no longer no, are no longer yeah. top of the art. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. We need uh... Political counter project, which yeah, because and Europe would be you know the European Union would be in a way a structure which would lead, could lead in those matters, and then you have a, a corrupt entity like von der Leyen promotes a new Bauhaus instead. No. All buildings of Europe in the last 70 years were disgusting. And people want to leave the European Union because they have no image of what Europe could be attractive. I mean, if you yeah. think of, of, of your parliament, you think of the Hague, you know, of America, you think of the capital building of buildings which are attractive. But what if you have to think of ugly buildings where you have, they become not only the symbol, they are actually the machine of, yeah. of anti-human scale. And, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe what ties into this is, a, is one of the final questions is, uh, how do we overcome modernism? Um, yeah, and, and from the ground up, uh, what is needed now? And uh, I believe it will tie into education, but uh, yeah, what, what, what's your opinion? How do we get to the, how do we get past modernism? How do we, uh, yeah, either break it down or skip it or? Well, I think the, it has to start with yourself. You have to, in order to lead a happy life, to be really a fulfilled and nice person, you can't be a modernist because they all become frustrated and uh, humiliated and uh, they know that they are in a criminal project, which is anti-human. <laughs> So it's to build alternative alternative models. But to build alternative small cities like Kailao, like Palmbury, um, or others, we have enormous failures. And as Duane always says, um, urbanism has a very high uh, mortality rate <laughs> of projects because you know, the system does not really allow them. It's only individuals who are strong enough to know that this is the right thing, and then maybe we are partially able to do it. And I'm not completely happy with, with Palmbury. People always say, you must be proud of Palmbury. I say, yeah, but it's it's nice. It's much better than everything else, but it's not really what we planned. Yeah. Because we reintroduced mixed use, we introduced traditional architecture, we introduced uh, the local crafts and so on, and local materials. But we could have had 
if we were really free, if it was mm -hmm. a free market, we would have the high street going through every single quarter. We would have now we have only shops on the on the squares because the council didn't allow shops on the high streets. Mm. And, um, because uh, in a we live in a planned economy, planned by state bureaucrats who are corrupted by by corporations, and to defend corporate interests, and they are to build large shopping malls and large single-use zones, you know, 10,000 houses without anything else, because that's what they are good at. But they cannot, they cannot plan, nor do they want to build traditional towns, because it goes against them. And you need strong individuals within the administration to be strong enough to know that this is the right thing to do. In Panbury, thanks God, we had an, an, uh, five or six people who were strong enough to to bring this through, but without this individual, the administration was was against it. Yeah. In Dresden, the administration has been against the reconstructions of the not only of the church. I was of nine experts, international experts, nineteen nineteen, the only one supporting the citizens to build the Frauenkirche. Yeah. All yeah. the others, Fayotto and uh, Speer and all the names, I forget them. They were against. They said, you cannot do this. And I said, yes, you, you can do this and you should do it. <laughs> and then when, when Kulke started the, um, uh, the initiative to rebuild the square, the administration was against, but only because he had this trick with getting 65,000 notes from an election booth <laughs> that they started rebuilding. He, Kulke, was able to have competition organized with public participation for the Neustadt, for the new town, the 18th century new town, which is ruined in the center by a horrible GDR socialist garbage. He had the competition organized to rebuild part the main square there with the agreement of the, of the burghers and the administration had to agree to it. Now, in the last two years, the administration have done everything to stop this. And now they have listed the GDR buildings, which yeah. are terrible buildings, yeah. which actually need to be rebuilt. The concrete panels you know, cracking everywhere and the, the joints leaking. Yeah. They listed these as public monuments. Yeah. And so it shows the perversity of public. You know, we, we have enormous administration to conserve buildings, to plant buildings, to manage buildings, and they do, they do the opposite. No. Yeah, planning and architecture and and uh, all these things are not in good hands as far as the state or the local administrations go. So it needs now private initiative to build alternatives, and then when the public then finally sees what is good, then maybe there could yeah. become a, a change in in the. No, but I don't see a solution coming from political pressure because now the public is so manipulated by by cheap propaganda and vulgar and uh, perverse and pornographic propaganda that it's very difficult to to see an opposition growing which could become really articulate about uh, about yeah. the larger issues, and, and so the, yeah. The internet, perhaps, because there, there is, well, um, there are more and more. You have the architecture uprisings in Sweden, which are having effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you will see when when this becomes very important, there will be you no know, will be censored. 
because censorship, uh, misinformation and disinformation, all these new propaganda uh, institutions are being installed in England, in France, everywhere, in Europe. And they are going to check whatever is threatening the system. And we have to, to accept, I mean, that von der Leyen, for instance, is a personality who is unbelievably corrupt. She had to leave Germany because she was corrupt. Now she's corrupted through the COVID uh, corruption. And her husband gets money. Von der Leyen, the president of Europe. And Uschi, Panzer Uschi in Germany. <laughs> she was corrupt. She had her family paid enormous sums for consulting about tanks. Or I don't know what things they had no idea about. And yeah. now in Europe, she's she did this contract with Pfizer and uh, and there are no documents. And so we have to accept that these people are corrupt and they need to be replaced. But they won't go by themselves. Yeah. What is your biggest hope at this moment? And um, yeah, what what positive things do you see go in the right direction? Well, I think, for instance, what what you do is is a sign <laughs> that you have a way to talk of truth which are universally shared. That beauty is important, and even if our buildings don't compare to the beauty of real tradition towns, but they are nearly as good. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and we can't do, if we didn't have the bureaucracy and the corrupt uh, corporations, we could, we would do much better now. There, is, there are some developments which are absolutely fantastic, which you should look at, like Lomas de Marbella Club. I don't know whether you know it, by uh, Donald Gray. We published a book in Madrid about it. What? No, one more. Uh, one more time. Lomas, double L O M A S, the uh -huh. Marbella Club. Oh yeah. Irene has done a film about it because he got the prize, the Manzano Prize. When you look at Manzano, mm. Premio Manzano, you yeah, see video. Yeah. yeah. See Irene's videos, and that is the best new traditional ensemble which was built in the sixties and seventies. And Donald Gray is not an architect. He died now, but he was he was an, a, a teacher of English and a writer and a painter, but he was not an architect because he had a friend who had all this, he produced these bricks and they planned this town to impeccable perfection. Yeah. And of course, now it's an, an area for the rich. It was built very cheaply. Uh, so there are alternatives, or Paul Grimaud in France, Paul Grimaud in France is by uh, Spöri, who planned, his partner planned uh, with the Weidmanns, the uh, Plessis yeah. Robinson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but have you been to Paul Grimaud? Uh, Paul Grimaud, uh, I, have, I have heard of it, I've read about it, but I haven't been there. Fantastic. I mean, it's uh, yeah. built, it was built to the cost of the then uh, Habitation à loyer modéré. Of, of social housing, of French social housing. Wow. If you yeah. imagine French social housing would have been built like that, France would be paradise. No? Yeah. Having the Cité, which are yeah. our places. So it was incredibly cheap, uh, cheaply built, and still it is a it is a very popular place. And uh, yeah. Now very rich. Yes. Now very rich. But yeah. there's a film by, um, by um, Louis Mal, no, Chabrol, Les Biches, 
where Trintignant is the architect of um, Port Grimaud, and he presents the building site to uh, Stéphane Audran, who is the main act actress in Les Biches. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So maybe... So um... right in France. Mm -hmm, sorry? No, in France, it's very well known. Yeah. And yet, it, and it was done in the 60s and 70s. We were, Maurice Cullo always used it as the counterexample. This is the model that we can do it. You don't need that much money to do traditional building. You need just the right plan and the right craftsman. And the, the consequences of this are enormous. And that is why the Prince of Wales was so important, because he was the only public figure who actually saw that there was something happening which was very important and then sustained it or supported yeah. it. And But where are there other public figures who have that courage yeah. to go against the stream? Modernism will die by its own death. It's a sterile, a dead language, and there's no... I'm now doing a book about Le Corbusier trying to prove that modernism is doubly corrupt because actually with Corbusier's talent, he could have done a real beautiful town, and we are demonstrating this now in 3D. And so, but it is really the zoning, this kind of uh, deconstruction of the human field in large geographic zones, which has destroyed also architecture because it's pre-planned monotony and industrial cloning, and which comes with it. In the end, you have pure economy going, going actually to its into its own uh, self-destruction. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. that is what the corporate takeover is. That it takes over, takes over until can't it can't swallow anymore. And then it's going to die. There yeah. was a very good example in uh, I taught at Yale, and, uh, and you know the the town, the mm -hmm. New Hartford, what's it called, I forget now. But the town where 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 Yale is was taken over in the in the nineteen forty six by uh, enormous money coming from the administration to build highways yeah. through the town. It was a beautiful town. And then they destroyed the, a black neighborhood, which was very beautiful. Yeah. They took rid of the, the, the blacks in the you know, near the university. And then they built these supermarkets and skyscrapers. And all this stuff, when I started in the 80s, was rotten already. They had then yeah. corporations left these buildings to rot. I was in a skyscraper there and uh, uh, I had to move my table away and drain because the water would come in on the 15th floor. <sighs> it's really architectural rot, so it's not has no future. So once they then they move out and have even bigger uh, bigger shopping malls and uh, and then what? Uh, yeah. Poisoning the, the the population and the landscape. And yeah. So there's no future in it. And there's a very important, Andres Duany has written a very important book about this called um, Agricultural uh, Urbanism, I think. It was published by the Prince's Foundation with drawings, beautiful illustrations, how you can take down the mega scale of agriculture in the United States, build small towns with small scale agricultural 
uh, enterprise farms around it, which can again nourish the again again nourish the place rather than export it to you know, to China or yeah 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 I think it's um I think it's important to uh, recognize how uh, architecture and the system in which we live are linked and not yeah and can not really be seen separate but still sometimes you need to prove a project uh yeah by doing it yourself and i think like you showed with the private initiatives like kayla and <clears throat> uh, well perhaps Pambury, where uh there was a private instigator uh sometimes you need to do an example project uh yeah disconnected from government to yeah to, to show it's that there is an alternative but, well, the, yeah. the king i mean prince charles when he was prince he's when he when he visited he would always come with very powerful people who are yeah. large corporations mm -hmm. have a large piece of land or even ambassadors and a lot of these people are now actually who, who own privately a lot of land are now trying to do this mm. so it's still in the planning stage but people like ben pantreath are are brilliant and george they're, yeah they are a lot in these projects so there's a lot coming i i work on other projects and uh, but always for private never pub public authority yeah. i had the only important job i ever had for public authority was for florence city council to replan the novoli which was the ex fiat area the, you know, the where they built airplanes and but when the mayor that was invited by Gianluzzo uh, Pucci, who was uh, the, the founder of the Green Movement in Tuscany in the 60s and 70s. And he was authentic green. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was really interested in, in gardening and, uh, and small-scale architecture and also traditional architecture. We did the project for the administration, but then the administration changed yeah. after seven months. And my plan was condemned in the papers as Il piano creer fa schifo. The plan, career plan is in a four-letter word. Yeah. Allowed to print it, but they printed it. And now it's built, but it's terrible because they maintain the plan, but the whole, the paving and the tree planting and the architecture is just disgusting. And so it's worthless. You need not only the, the, the nice streetscape and the parks and the traditional quarters, you need the architecture, you need the mixed use, you need the uh, mixed yeah. income so that they are not only rich, but also the, the, the lesser um, uh, bestowed uh, allowed to live there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a final, final question. Um, yeah, do we have any advice for young designers, architects, or anyone uh, involved in the world of architecture and planning, uh, what they should do or know or how they should hold themselves in this modern world? Well, there's, you know, we get a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, correspondence from young people at schools who are bored. And actually, yeah. the, the table ronde, l'architecture, they have many people who come from architecture schools from Barcelona, wherever, from Kiev, <laughs> from <laughs> Washington, who are bored because you don't learn anything in architecture school. I really strongly recommend people not to spend time and money 
to study in the normal architectural schools because all they, they learn is not to do the right thing. And usually when you get out five years later, you are not only uh, incapable of doing real architecture, but you're also depressed. And that's the worst enemy of, of yeah. making a good life. You know? And But go to work for an architect who, you know, they are now in every country. We have a long list of architects who do the right thing in many different countries, even in Thailand and in China and in all its political systems. Yeah. It's there are now people who are really doing the right thing. And the, the Notre Dame, also the Manzano Prize uh, group in, in Madrid, they publish enormous publications every six months, five, six hundred pages, full of projects from all around the world. We can't publish them all because we get now so much yeah. stuff. Yeah. And uh, so it's to learn to learn from people who know, but also you can learn a lot by yourself. And one for the, my most radical way of learning traditional architecture is not only to sit there and, and draw you know, beautiful buildings, but also to sit in ugly places and draw everything. Yeah. To learn how ugly the world is now. And then you know, record what is nice about the town and then try to improve. I can send you, I did examples with students like that. Yeah. How to study ugly places and how to improve them. Because sometimes the ugly places are still in the right scale. For instance, in Italy, a lot of suburbs, they're very ugly, but they're still sort of not unpleasant to live in. And we positioned, Maurice and Maurice Kulu and I, we positioned our students in the worst places. And then people mm -hmm. would come up to the houses and say, oh, don't draw this, this is ugly. Go into the <laughs> go into the center <laughs> buildings and uh, but then how to learn how to improve ugly places and sometimes it's not that difficult no? but it's very important one technique is to study a building not draw mm -hmm. stand in front of a building which talks to you because buildings they're like personalities you like them or you don't when you find the building you like and mm -hmm. there's plenty of them around then you look at them and you learn by heart, like you learn a poem or text. You learn every part by heart and you try to name every part and then go home and redraw it. And yeah. then when you go back and then compare what you did out of it and what it was, and then you can explore not only the forms, but also the language, the names, because every part of traditional architecture has a name. And that yeah. is what allows you to communicate with craftsmen, and not only about the profile, but also part, uh, whether it's part of a yeah. capital column. Yeah. And, um, and it is that, that language which is missing, even the vocabulary is missing for modernism. Um, this. I, I would like to have this kind of thing, you know, cantilevering something, you know, like this, you know, uh, what yeah. you call it. And, uh, it's a <laughs> beam, what for? A beam is pressing <laughs> <laughs> <Passing> something. <laughs> and uh, it's by learning also from the mistakes, because it's very painful. I, I had students, they took like a day to learn really the nice parts of a town, the chimneys, the doors, the 
know, the window frames. And I'll send you one of the exercises, which was fantastic. I did with Maurice Kulo and Eric And uh, But then to draw the ugly places would take three, four days. Because there's an inner resistance to draw everything ugly. Yeah. <laughs> because you feel you are wasting your time. No, you learn something. Yeah. Yeah. Then there. But then talk to people. And, uh, you know, there are good architects now everywhere. We have lists of, even of craftsmen. So important friends in Germany until 1960, 65. Everyone who wanted to study architecture had to do an, um, a craft, um, an apprenticeship in some craft, either in you know, woodworking or ironwork or plaster. There are 39 crafts in traditional architecture. Wow. So you had to do an apprenticeship for six months and note what I learned. You need seven years to learn it, but at least to know about it. Yeah. But it was very important to know about craft. And it is there where the pleasure is, because it's in these traditional crafts that you have an enormous choice for different talents to find what they are good at. And the people who work iron and mm -hmm. are at the forge are very different characters, even physically, from those yeah. who work plaster or fresco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and wood, no. I worked a lot in, in the wood industry with furniture and was then invited to do some metal metal work for a company in Italy. And the the woman who introduced me that you have to understand that working for wood in the wood industry is very different from working in the metal industry because people in metal industry are very cold. <laughs> <laughs> it was true. Oh, they didn't invite yeah. you to they take you to the airport that's all <laughs> <laughs> but so oh, you know, there's an enormous variety and and uh, and talent is still born so it's such a waste to have these young people who are often very talented and you saw it in 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 Bruges and Bellum you know how yeah. these young people 16 years old did draw drawings like architects are not able to do yeah yeah what absolutely of being taught by a good hand yeah. in Utrecht we had also very gifted students yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, but that's, I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful knowledge to share and also something I might pick up myself. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Sorry for my hoarse voice all the time. Um, yeah. I think this is a good place maybe to, uh, to end the interview. I'll just stop recording after this, uh, but uh, we can talk a bit longer. But thank you so much for for making all the time. And uh, I think it has been a wonderful interview so far. And uh, I think people will get a lot of value from it. So, yeah. You have a lot of talent. Maybe you have also talent for planning or for architecture. Well, I did study urbanism, but in the worst place imaginable, in uh, Delft. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I, I can try. I mean, I might go to Notre Dame, perhaps. Um, but I'll have to decide on that. But yeah. No, they're fantastic people in Notre Dame, and, but there's also very good architects in it. Yeah. You, were you there with Martin van Schaik? Martin van Schaik? In Delft. I'm not sure, Martin van Schaik. He lives in Antwerp now. He, he does his doctorate about my... Uh, I'm not sure if I know him, uh, but I did buy this when I was 
studying in uh, in Delft. Um, so I studied urban planning at the University of Amsterdam, but it was very much uh, based on policy, and I was a bit uh, sad that I didn't learn anything creative. So then I thought, I want to, yeah, <laughs> I want to learn how to design something beautiful. So then I switched to Delft, and I had to do a whole year, uh, two semesters of uh, of architecture at the architecture faculty of Delft. <clears throat> yeah. And of course, well, I had to design so you know, honest things. You know from the inside. Yeah, I know it from the inside. And it was, well, I, I designed things I'm not proud of. And then I could finally do my urbanism master. And then I discovered that the master was useless. There was, I, I learned almost nothing that I wanted to learn. And all, I'm actually a bit jealous of the, the summer school students uh, in Belém and also in Utrecht, which where I now help guide the students because they learn everything I wanted to learn when I was in university. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a waste, a waste of money and your youth when you are best at things. Yeah, it's a waste. And, and now I'm trying to self-educate and read books and I hope, uh, yeah, where to start as a planner. I just hope. I to, think it uh, would be, I mean, it would be great if you could work, uh, I think if you would work for a year with Maria and Pedro, people like that, yeah. you would learn any school. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. It's not only about architecture, but also about uh, publicity. and Because it involved everything nowadays. Yeah, um, yeah, but exactly. Have you been to to uh, uh, Brandewort? Yeah, yes. I've been my brother, my brother designed the yeah, but not the new part, which was it's an achievement, huh? Yeah, it's but, it's a nice place, only it's it's a bit too much of a it's not really connected well, so it's very much autonomous. And because of that, it's not as lively. Perhaps it would have been nice to have uh, some road through it that would yeah. It's that's the problem that it's always we are supposed to do suburbs. Huh? Yeah, and to do something different is very very difficult. Yeah, but then but it's, it's then, still nice. Yeah, the, the new extension of, yeah. of it would be horrible. Yeah, horrible. yeah. They they actually wanted another Brandevoort like, and then they cancelled it, and now they're going to make the the Brainport br Smart District, and it's absolutely horrible. Horrible, horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. was very disappointed because no, they they had planned everything. Yeah, he did a very interesting in Harlem. Mm -hmm. a small settlement yeah and so it, it's very cheaply built but for people who can buy a house for fifty thousand kilter I, I don't know what but, yeah <laughs> but then they had to replace the windows which were fake windows and they had to go to some do-it-yourself shop to buy the right type of window <laughs> and i met the developer on the spot who had done he had done a supermarket of 2,000 square meters on the roof, no people's home, and this small town, like a village with 100 houses or 200 houses. And I said, but it's remarkable that you did this. And, and he said, well, well, I'm not interested in it. I'm, I just did this because I have to do it. I can only build my supermarkets if I built the old people's home on top. He's obliged by law. Wow. So yeah. there are some some tricks in Holland which allows to do more than just suburb. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. 
make out the locations and that is very tiresome mm -hmm. because you're only educated in urbanism to become an, a bureaucrat not to plan town that's well yeah to create places that conform to the status quo to to create i don't know new brainport smart districts with funky blocks but it's not planning it's it's no. too random to be planning you don't create streets you don't create urban places and then you go there to study them but then the next part is there was nothing of value it's abstraction yeah yeah completely abstract everything was about complex mm. cities or very theoretical things conceptual architecture and i guess you could if you would really hammer on it i think you can blaze your own path but you need to be very strong-willed and aware of what is going on to be able to do that and i wasn't very aware yet at that time but i digress thank you so much for this wonderful interview i was really happy to and honored to have you on well the honor is mine and i think you do a formidable work to get these ideas out because i think we have an enormous amount of public waiting yeah i think <laughs> so too yeah. <laughs> yeah and most people seem to agree so that's uh, nice as well we don't impose we just offer another choice we say this is a possibility it's not no not an yeah. obligation yeah try it <laughs> yeah wonderful then uh thank you and uh, see you next time Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. You can find more information about Leon Creer, well, by simply googling his name. A lot of lectures will come up, his books and much more. But for your convenience, I've added a number of links to these lectures and to his book in the podcast description. If you like our content and want to support what we do, you can support us in various ways. The easiest way is to give this podcast a favorable review. Another way to support this podcast is to share it with colleagues and friends. You can also follow us on X, subscribe to our YouTube channel or our Substack newsletter. And finally, the ultimate way to support The Aesthetic City is to become a patron. Find the Patreon link in the description. For more information about this platform, visit theaestheticcity.com. Thank you until next time.